Good morning. Let's go over a few announcements, if we will. <clears throat> and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Matthew 2, verse 23. Today is our communion service, following the worship service, as usual, a 10-minute break, and we gather uh, when you hear the music. There will be no choir or evening service this evening. Prayer meeting also on Wednesday evening, 7 p.m. Uh, there's a note here on our financial deficit. Uh, you look up on the board, uh, we're starting off the year fresh, so... Have that in your in your hearts and minds. Uh, the church white elephant gift and service party Friday, January the 18th, a couple of weeks here at the church. Uh, I'm still not clear on all that. Jessica, but uh, Jessica can clear everybody up.
Sounds like a work party to me. Uh, this, we're going to be giving them as gifts? Yes, to the Can, hospital. Oh, okay. I was thinking about gifts to each other because if we could do that and put names on them, that could be fun. Oh, we got the white elephant gift exchange yeah. for each other. That's for each the other in the church? Okay, got that clear. So are we putting names on these gifts for the people at the church? Or? No. Have you ever done a white elephant exchange? No, but I imagine I could mess that up too. It's pretty funny. So just bring your gift wraps. Nobody knows what it is. And no, don't put anybody's name on it. Rats. <laughs> okay. Okay, everyone's clear on that? Okay. Uh, Andrea is our texting contact, uh, offering envelopes. And as, again, the pastor thanks everyone for the generous gift. Uh, Clayton's are not here today. I think most of you are aware that uh, Laura's father has gone to be with the Lord uh, this past weekend. Uh, I was looking at some of the texting. Uh, Jess? She just posted details of that on her Facebook page. If you want to know what the visitation stuff is, I can... Certainly, if you'd like to. An announcement on the pulpit right there. Oh, is it on there? Yeah. Phil can read. Okay. Okay, it's uh, Monday, January 7th, 4 to 8 p.m. is the viewing, Pixley Funeral Home in Rochester Hills. And uh, Tuesday the 8th will be the funeral at First Baptist Church. Uh, they've got a 10 a.m. visitation, 11 a.m. is the funeral, 12 to 2 is a luncheon, and uh, 2.30 at the White Chapel, uh, graves, gravesite. Uh, and we'll post this in case anybody needs more information. Or again, you can get with Jess on that. <clears throat> I went over some of the texting that uh, Laura had texted back and forth to the members of the church. And one of the text messages uh, I thought was was exceedingly profound. What was said, it was very simple. Uh, Laura texted that he he passed away in her arms and went to be with the Lord. And there was a reply that there is no better way to die than to be passed from the arms of a loved one into the arms of a loving God. And if you think about that, it, it is it is uh, such a, a tremendous amount of solace and comfort that we look to and look forward to in our last days when we draw our last breath, to, to be able to be taken from the arms of a loved one into the loving arms of Christ. I can think of no other, no other way, no better way than to, than to leave this earth. The sadness that we should, should have is not for something like this, or for a loved one, or a friend, or even an acquaintance that does not know Christ when they die. There is the sadness, there is the mourning, there is, is the sorrow and the hopelessness. And I would hope that this is a lesson for all of us, especially me, to be more conscious of approaching those 
who are without Christ in a more compassionate and loving way, in a forgiving way, even if those people have nothing for you. Because Christ first loved us when we hated him. So, that said, our scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 16 through 25. That would be page 1220 in your pew.
Would you stand with us as we begin our service with prayer? Brother Ed Riffle, would you lead us in prayer this morning? Father God, thank you that we can address you in this way because of your son's great, great sacrifice for our sin. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to worship you. I pray that you will be in heaven our praises. Be with those who are grieving today, Laura and her family. Be with those who are ill and unable to make it here. Open our ears by your spirit. To our pastor and lose his tongue and boldness. Hear our hearts. Be over to us. We praise you and thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Please remain standing. Uh, Clara may just notify me that we have acts and facts new on the on the table in the vestibule. Good morning. Will you take your brown hymnal this morning to turn to 155, 155 in the brown hymnal.
Corinthians 2.17, Christ the Lord is risen today. 2.17, and do you have a reason for 2.17? The reason is because I've just been thinking of that song because it's somehow communion reminded me of that and I kind of had it in my head, I guess. It's a great hymn. All right. So 2.17 in the brown. <clears throat> for scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. That'll be 14, 
98 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with us. Starting at verse 16 of Matthew 2. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. <clears throat> After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to her trying to take the child's life, are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So, was fulfilled what was said through the prophet he would be called a Nazarene ask for the Lord's blessing on the reading take your brown hymnal once again and turn to 139 139 in the brown
Our scripture text this morning is found in Matthew 2. That hymn we just sung says it's an Appalachian melody. The Appalachian um, mountain range runs right through Pennsylvania, upper, st- upper state New York. Uh, these were mountain people, and they used to sing with uh, homemade instruments, not pianos, not organs, but guitars and banjos and uh, mouth harps, they called them, and things of that nature. Uh, not complicated music, but heartfelt music. Uh, because that's what they had. And they weren't meeting in church buildings. They were meeting in cabins and places in the woods and things of that nature. And God has people everywhere. He has them in the mountains and and the valleys and everywhere in between. And uh, it's just good once in a while to see some songs of their worship. It's in, in our hymnals. It's cool. Really cool. Well, our text is Matthew 12. We're presently doing a a little mini-series on the geography of Jesus' life. So far we have considered the birthplace, which was Bethlehem, those prophecies surrounding that city as predicted for the site of Messiah's birth. We've also looked at Egypt, the hiding place, when Herod sent the Magi to investigate the location of Jesus' nativity, his intent was to kill him because Herod thought of Jesus as a rival to his own throne. So in the night, Joseph was warned to flee by an angel, and he escaped under cover of darkness just moments before Herod's soldiers entered the town to slaughter all the boy, toddlers, two years old and younger. We drew out a number of lessons that parental love when informed will preserve their children. Didn't matter what hour of the night it was. Joseph got up, got his family, got out of there. Danger was imminent. Secondly, we learned that Herod knowingly fought against the will of God when he went with his troops to Bethlehem against the Messiah. He asked where the Messiah was going to be born. He knew, he knew historically that the Messiah was the anointed one. That's what the word means. <laughs> and he tries to kill God's son, human son. So I have no sympathy for Herod. He died a terrible, ignoble, ignoble death. But that's the kind of man he was. We'll learn more a little about him today. We learn that God calls all of his sons and daughters out of Egypt. Egypt stands for the world. That's where we were. We were part of that. That's our abode until the enemy of our souls is slain and God's grace comes into our lives. Paul says we were once part of all of that. And uh, the Lord reaches us where we are at and brings us to him. Well, in today's study, we come to Nazareth, and I'm calling it the living space, because that is where Jesus grew up as a boy. It's where he conducted a goodly part of his ministry as a man, earning him the title a Nazarene. As we come to our study, let's seek for God's empowerment. Matthew 12, verse 1. 
Father, send your word to our hearts by way of your spirit. Yes, we have the text before us. We're so thankful for that. Historically, the Bible was under persecution. Generations of people did try to burn it and keep the common citizens from having a copy. It was believed to be only for the clergy. They would chain a Bible to a post in the square, and that's as close as anybody could get to it, to read it, to study. But then the printing press was invented, Lord, and wow, the first book they was printed was the Bible, and it was made accessible to the general public, and that changed everything. Here we are today. I expect we have more than one Bible in our homes. But it's a privilege to be able to open the pages of Scripture and to see what your Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write concerning the birth and the life of Christ. Help us to learn the lessons, to be thankful for the Scriptures. In in Jesus' name, amen. We're looking today at Nazareth. The Living Space. This series is dealing with certain geographical locations in the life of Christ and trying to plug into what happened to him in those various locations. In our last study, we noted that as a result of a direct threat on Jesus' young life as a toddler, his parents, under prompting from God, whisked him away in the night to Egypt, of all places, to escape the sword of Herod's slaughter. We wouldn't think that he would go to a place like Egypt, but God told him to go there. That's where he went. Verse 14 and 15, So he got up, he's referring to Joseph, took the child and his mother during the night, and he left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the word, what the Lord had said through the prophet and the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. What we are witnessing here is divine providence in guiding Jesus' life, just as divine providence guides our lives. And there is not a thing which occurred in Jesus' career that God the Father did not have his finger in. If he escapes to Egypt, sets up housekeeping there, it's because God predicted it to be so. Hundreds of years earlier, in in this case through the prophet Hosea. If he eventually returns to Nazareth, it's because there's a prophecy saying he will be called a Nazarene. Verse 23 of our text. Referencing, I think, a lot of the prophecies which Matthew kind of synthesizes together. Referring, alluding to Isaiah 11, verse 1. Now we read these things and we say, but, but there are no such prophecies concerning my life as a believer. And I would say that that's not true. If not by name, certainly by description. We have many prophecies which talk about you and me as the people who in time became believers and disciples of Jesus Christ. You don't really think that your salvation 
is by accident, do you? I hope you don't. If you're part of this church, you will have learned that a long time ago. Nothing is by accident in God's realm of operation, and his realm of operation is everywhere. Consider the billions of people who populate the earth, the millions who have heard the gospel and rejected it, the fact that you are in the kingdom of God while others are not, that cannot be coincidence. Recently I referred to the Lamb's Book of Life, which is alluded to in Revelation 17, verse 8, which reads this way, The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, the beast of Revelation. The beast represents the anti-God powers of Satan and the world. Well, the world of unbelievers is astonished, it is allured, it is amazed by the beast, but not those whose names have been written in the book of life since the creation of the world. We're not going to be fooled by that. Well, who are these people? Revelation 3 verse 5 identifies them with the believers of the church of Sardis. And it reads there, He who overcomes will, like them, the church of Sardis, be dressed in white, And I will never blot out his name from the book of life. But will acknowledge his name before my father and the angels. Referring to persevering believers who gain the same blessing as the Sardis believers. Who remain faithful to Christ. So we share a common trait with these early Christians found in that early church, one of those early churches. What's the common trait? Our names are written in the book of life. There's a book. Moses mentions this book in Exodus 12, verse 32, asking God to forgive Israel for their wicked sin. And if he won't do it, listen to Moses, he asked God to blot his name out of the book. If you're not going to forgive my people, then don't forgive me. Wow. Daniel was told by God concerning the great tribulation to come that this is the way God phrased it. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found, written in the book, Daniel, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel 12, verse 1, verse 2. So you see, this book, book, is referred to many times in Scripture. God has a ledger And all who are saved or ever will be saved are written in that book. You may not know the names, but God knows the names. And he has made a determination long before these people ever came to be 
that their names would be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This is providence working out the prophecy. Consider as well Jesus' prayer in John 17. In verse 20 and following, where he has been praying for his 11 remaining disciples, Judas had long time gone. Here's what he says. My prayer is not for them alone, the 11. (coughs) Not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe through their message that all of them may be one, Father. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those that you have given to me to be with me where I am. John 17, verse 20 and following. So, Jesus prayed for all who listened to the apostolic testimony and as a result would believe in Christ as Savior. That's you. That's me. If you've come to Christ in faith. If you've committed your life to Him. This is providence working out the prophecy. You weren't even around when Jesus prayed this prayer. But you were there in the mind of God. Paul to the Ephesians says, Praise be to the God and Father, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Before the creation of the world, we read of the names that were written in the book of life before the creation of the world. It's the same event, brethren. Providence works out the prophecy. Every believer in Christ is the product of such working providence. Jesus came out of Egypt as a son called from the world, and you and I are also called from Egypt in fulfillment to biblical prophecy. Providence is at work in your life. Salvation is on purpose. It's not an accident. It's on purpose. Secondly, I want you to observe the timing of Jesus' return to Palestine. Look at verse 19. It says, after Herod died. After Herod died. And even with Herod dead, his son, Archelaus, had succeeded him, and he wasn't much better, (laughs) let me tell you, as a ruler. Verse 22 says that Joseph was fearful of locating in Judea because of this. And God confirmed his fears in a dream, verse 22, and instructed him to settle in Nazareth. Archelaus is no better than Herod the Great. Our callus is just as bloody. So Joseph is saying, you know, Lord, do I really want to go back to Galilee? I don't know about this. 
Historically, Herod slaughtered all of the boy toddlers of Bethlehem. And we have a tendency to think that he got away with it. What is more, we think the same about all people with position and power. We say, the law comes crashing down on the lowly citizen. But if you have power and position and money, you will see the law turn a blind eye. And there is the further idea that the wicked can keep on being wicked with impunity. Nothing bad seems to happen to them. They just go merrily on their way. Let me say categorically, this is not the case with King Herod. And it's not the case with anyone who is wicked. It just seems that way to us at times because in our limited sight, we can't see the end from the beginning. Solomon wrestled with the same negative thoughts. Here's what he writes. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressor, and they have. No comforter. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 1. So Solomon could see it. What he is saying is that the wicked are beating up on the innocent and they're getting away with it. It looks like they're getting away with it anyway. But then in reflection, Solomon made this observation. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. He's talking about the shadow on a sundial. Their days are not going to just go on and on and on. The clock is ticking. The seconds of their existence are passing away. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11 and following. So the truth here is that people may seem to be getting away with murder, like Herod. But there is an accounting day coming, both temporally and eternally. Just because the wicked are permitted some measure of success in their designs, and we can think of them, boy, Herod, the Pharisees, Pilate, Hitler, Mussolini in modern times, Stalin, Bin Laden, Saddam Hussein, on and on and on. It does not mean that God has gone to sleep or is blind. What's going on then? Paul tells us, Romans 2, verse 5 and following. He tells us that God lets sinners, he allows sinners to store up, I'm reading scripture, store up wrath against themselves 
for the day of God's wrath when the righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done to those who by persistence in doing good he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth, who follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. That doesn't sound to me like they're getting away with it. I think this is part of the answer as to why the wicked prosper, as to how they can do evil and seem to get away with it. They are making deposits in the bank account of judgment, awaiting the day when God will right all wrongs and bring them to a miserable end. This was Herod. He was a bloody man. He killed his wife. He killed her two sons. He killed another son by another wife. He did have 30 wives. He killed the boy toddlers of Bethlehem. Yet he slept well at night. He did. No guilty conscience kept him awake. No remorse made him fearful of God or others. He was content in his wickedness. Continued his course unrepentant until the day he died. But that's my point. He did die. And what does the scripture say about that? It says this. Hebrews 9.27 Man is destined to die once. And after that to face judgment that's what the scripture says Herod had an appointment with death that he could not avoid and all of his money his power his influence could not stay the hand of the grim reaper and there's no doubt to his outcome either let me read it for you The Bible testifies, when a wicked man dies, I'm reading scripture, when a wicked man dies, his hope perishes. All he expected, I'm still reading, all he expected from his power comes to nothing. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Proverbs 11, verse 7 and following. And in verse 21, Be sure of this, says the Solomon writer, the wicked will not go unpunished. Again in Proverbs 16, verse 4, the Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. In Psalm 49, says of the wicked, their tombs will remain their houses forever, Though they had named land after themselves. Like sheep they are destined for the grave and death will feed on them. 
Their forms will decay in the graves far from their princely mansions. He will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. He will join the generation of his fathers who will never see the light of life. Wow. I don't want that written about me. What a miserable, miserable end for King Herod. He ate well, he lived well as a king basking in the opulence of his power and prestige. But now, now dead and dying, decayed yet living on in torment, he awaits what the Bible calls the second death, where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. And no amount of pleasure in sin is worth that end. But for the heart of heart, that's the only end that's open to them. Secondly then, what then of Jesus' life once Herod was out of the picture? Well, to avoid Herod's successor, Archelaus, Jesus was settled with his parents in Nazareth. Nazareth is a little town in the province of Galilee. This is where Jesus grew up as a boy. He was likely in Egypt anywhere from 9 to 10 years because at age 12 he traveled with his parents to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. So he spent a good amount of time in Egypt. Nazareth. And he was so identified with Nazareth of Galilee that the religious leaders assumed, assumed that he had been born there and had always lived there. Nazareth comes from the Hebrew for branch, Nezer, N-E-Z-E-R. And this is why Isaiah 11.1 is cited as the prophecy identifying Jesus as a Nazarene. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father, you remember. From his root, a branch, a Nazar, will appear and will bear fruit. Well, what kind of fruit? The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. With righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. That's the term Nazar from which the name Nazarene arise. Now, all of that being true, that term Nazarene, however, in the days of Jesus had become a a term of contempt. When Jesus began to call his disciples, 
he called Philip, who then went to Nathanael, his brother, and said, now let me read it for you, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets wrote, we have found Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Philip responded, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And Nathanael said to his brother, Well, come and see. So Philip went to see for himself. John 1, verse 45 and 46. Nathanael's response was typical. Nazareth was located in the province of Galilee in Upper Palestine. On a later occasion, when the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest Jesus, they returned empty-handed, giving as their defense the fact that they had never heard such wonderful teaching. The Pharisees railed on these soldiers, urging them to consider that none of the Jewish leaders had believed in Jesus. At this juncture, Nicodemus stepped forward and he said, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? And for saying that, he received this sarcastic rebuttal from his fellow Pharisees. Are you from Galilee? They said. Look into it. You'll find out that a prophet does not come from Galilee. John 7, verse 15, 51. Boy, they really put they put him in his place, right? What a put down. They said to him, look into it and you'll see that no prophet comes from Galilee. Well, when we do look into it, guess what? There is a prophet that came from Galilee. His name was Jonah. Nicodemus was right. The Pharisees were wrong. Jonah was a prophet from Galilee who preached the gospel, notwithstanding, reluctantly. You remember the story. But the result was the greatest salvation of Gentiles, converts in the entire Bible. 600,000 people came to know the gospel. Through the preaching of Jonah. But as to Jesus. We have this prophecy. In Isaiah 9 verse 11. In the future. God will honor Galilee. Of the Gentiles. By the way of the sea. Along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness. Have seen a great light. And on those living in the land. Of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. For to us a child is born. To us. The son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. Why did the religious leaders hate Galilee and the inhabitants of Nazareth so much? Well, because this was the place of a concentration of Gentile settlements In Jesus' day, the northern border of the Samaritan half-breeds, that was Galilee, 
but more loathsome, the Romans under Pompey had established a garrison there. And they had built the marvelous modern Gentile city of Tiberias along the southern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Oh boy, that really, that really burned the Jews in their heart. And Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, built his palace there on the shores of Galilee. Boy, that was just rubbing salt in the wound to these Pharisees. On the northern shore was Capernaum, the city in which Jesus settled after his wilderness temptation, according to Matthew 4.13, and from which he administered his entire ministry. Some of the most stupendous events of Jesus' ministry occurred in Galilee. The Sermon on the Mount, Galilee. The feeding of the 5,000, Galilee. The healing of Peter's mother-in-law and the centurion's daughter, Galilee. The raising to life of the dead son of the widow of Nain. The transfiguration of Christ. Galilee, Galilee, Galilee. His walking on the water. The healing of the blind man. The casting out of the demons from the madman of Gadara. All occurred in Galilee of the Gentiles, his hometown area. But he was ill-received. In fact, It was because he was ill-received that he made this general pronouncement. Only in his own hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he did not, still reading, he did not do many miracles there in Galilee, in Nazareth, because of their lack of faith. Matthew 13, verses 57 and 58. And the context shows their assumptions. This was their problem. Here are their assumptions. Let me read it for you. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brother James, Joseph, Simon, Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. Oh, they thought they knew who this guy was. They didn't know him at all. And though Jesus did not perform many miracles in Nazareth, Galilee Galilee itself was the scene of so many miracles that Jesus upbraided the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum saying that even the wicked Gentile cities of Tyre, Sidon, Sodom, and Gomorrah would have repented of their sin at his preaching and miracles had they had the opportunity to witness Jesus' teaching. 
Nazareth, Galilee, was the living space of the Lord of glory and the place of his extensive ministry. Not Jerusalem. We might think that. No, it was Galilee, Nazareth. Now, what do we learn from all of this? Well, let me suggest some things. Number one, envy not those of position, power, and money, and popularity if they don't have Christ. For what will it profit a man taught Jesus if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Mark 8, verse 36. Herod came close to Christ, but because of his evil intent and jealousy, their paths never clicked. He missed Christ altogether. The boy whom he tried to silence is the king before whom Herod had to give an account of his life and deeds. Think about it. How many there will be who miss Christ by pursuing lesser things? Here we are idolizing the movie stars, the entertainers, envious of the latest mega ball millionaires. Wishing that we had their money, their popularity, without their troubles. But you're far richer. Do you know that? You are far richer. Your name has been written in the book of life and not as an afterthought, but on purpose. The words of Christ to the church of Smyrna should be taken to heart. I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. Smyrna, believers, I know about your affliction, I know about your poverty, but you are rich. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you, I will give you the crown of life. Revelation 2, verse 9 and following. Let me tell you, Herod would give anything he had to, in, in, to exchange his golden jeweled crown for Jesus' crown of life. You're rich. I'm rich. Secondly, learn that Christ can be rejected because of his humanity as well as because of his deity. We always go to the deity part. We say that's why people don't want to have anything to do with Christ. Well, that's true. But here we see him being rejected in his humanity. In Nazareth, in his hometown, the locals rejected him because they understood the ins and outs of his humanity. They knew his father. They knew his mother. They knew his brothers. They knew his sisters. They knew his house. They knew his trade. He was so human to them that they could not see the divine. And he was treated with contempt. Unbeknown to them, Jesus was the Nazare, the Nazarene, the branch of Jesse, the one 
who was father to King David. And thus he was in David's royal line. He was a royal heir. They treated him, however, like a weed. They treated him like poison ivy, not as a royal branch of David's family tree. Same goes on today. People see Jesus' humanity, his vulnerability to space and time. They read of his birth, his life, even his death, and they conclude that he was a real person who walked upon the face of the earth. Yes, yes, yes. But like the Galileans, they explain away his wonderful and spiritual teaching and discredit his miracles by concentrating more upon his poverty and lowly estate And they suppose that God would not think of dwelling among men in such humble conditions. So he can't be God. And in their pride, people conclude that Jesus was a peasant with no education, no university training, no degree after his name. So how could he possibly be any person of importance? Human is divine. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. But too many in our day stumble over Jesus' deity because of his humanity. They want a more uh, regal figure to worship and adore, not knowing that his humanity equipped him for a cross by which he would die for the sins of his people. I wonder if you're one that stumbles over Christ. Have you explained away his miraculous life like the town folk of his own day? Then thirdly, I want you to observe that the carpenter's son knows best how to utilize wood. He can carry a cross for you and save you from your sins and set you free or he can build a coffin for you to confine you in the prison house of death unbelief closes the door to God's mercy and grace it drives the nails that hold the lid of the coffin fast unbelief think of these town folk from Jesus village of Nazareth Their own testimony of his ministry was this. Coming to his hometown, reading scripture. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogues and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Matthew 13, verse 24. They're amazed at his teaching. They're all struck by his wisdom. They're dumbfounded by the witness of his miraculous powers. Yes, yes, yes. By their own confession, they were flooded all about by the grace of God rubbing up against them like a corked bottle bobbing in the sea, surrounded by water, but dry on the inside. They were in presence of God Almighty, the one whom Isaiah reported would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to grant them a glorious rest. 
through the peace of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. But their unbelief nullified the effects of grace. It drove Christ into a posture of no longer doing the miraculous among them. And it barred Jesus the Savior from their lives. I wonder, could that be you? All struck by Jesus, but unimpressed. Amazed at his power, but unmoved. Unbelief stopped up the grace of God, and it hinders its release. Faith brings sinners into union with Christ as Savior. And the mark of faith is repentance. And the first sin of which you need to repent is the sin of unbelief. The evidence is so tremendous and it's clear. Nothing ambiguous about it. What a sad commentary on the town folk of Nazareth. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now he could have done miracles there despite their lack of faith. But the point being made was he chose not to do the miracles there because of their lack of faith. They're not going to believe in what I'm doing and who I am and where I've come from and why I'm here. Why should I try to convince you otherwise? Some God, sometimes God leaves sinners to their own inventions. He just takes his hand off. You want it to go this way? Go this way. And suffer the consequences accordingly. If lack of faith is your problem, I want to note the response of the father who had a son who was a deaf mute and he approached Jesus saying, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. To which Jesus replied, if you can, did I hear that? Did I hear that right? If you can, Everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Mark 9 verse 24. Maybe that's the prayer some of you need to pray today. I believe, but oh, there's so much unbelief. Lord, help me. Grant me faith. Grant me repentance. Father, salvation is of the Lord. Jonah said it. Salvation is of the Lord. It might be a shock to us to hear that Jesus makes an analysis of people. He can choose not to do many miracles because of people's lack of faith. It isn't people that control God. It's God who controls people and the events of life. 
If we don't know God in Christ, we have no claim on God's power to do any kind of miracle. And our unbelief is so settled within us, it's so much a part of our human nature, that to hear of the glories of Christ and the things that he's done, you know, Satan steps in and he says, oh, yeah, really? And he downplays and ridicules and mocks the power and authority of Christ. But he's already doomed. The baby Jesus already doomed the devil and his angels because he's king of kings and lord of lords. The Bible says we must all give an account. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we're going to give an account. I pray that you will grant us that repentance and faith that grabs hold of Jesus and won't let him go until he blesses us. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal. One, two, seven. We're going to sing this hymn, then take a 10-minute break, regather for our communion service, and then that will be the end of our services for today. 127 in the brown hymnal, let's stand together as we sing.
take a short break and regather when you hear the music for our communion service.